Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, it's time for another Beeson Podcast, and I'm delighted to introduce to you today a new friend and a new pastor in our community, Dr. Bill Boyd. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much. Now, you're the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, which is right across the road from Sanford University and Beeson Divinity School. You've been here about two years, I think. That's correct. We moved here actually June two years ago, but I didn't start preaching until August, so we're almost to it's the two-year two year mark. Well, I know you were born in Birmingham. I think your father was a law student here at Cumberland School of Law, and so now you've come back to Birmingham in a different role. So does it feel like your life sort of come full circle in these years? In a very strange way, it does. I lived in Birmingham six months the first time. My dad was a senior in law school. We moved to Mississippi where I grew up in South Mississippi, went to school at Ole Miss, worked uh, in the camping world at Alpine Camp for Boys, and then went to seminary in St. Louis. And from there, uh, we were facing uh, back eastward, but uh, the Lord turned us 180 degrees, and we ended up spending 16 years in Austin, Texas. In yeah. Austin. So, so what did you do in Austin? We were called out there initially to plant a new campus ministry for our denomination at the University of Texas. And after eight years of that, that led to us planting a church for our denomination out there. So the ministry was called Reform University Fellowship. Uh, the church we planted is called All Saints Presbyterian. Yes, we've had some Beeson students involved with Reformed University Fellowship in different places around the country. So uh, now I've got to ask you, a, you might think it's a stupid question, but you're the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church. You went to a seminary, Covenant Presbyterian Seminary. Covenant keeps coming up a lot with you Presbyterians. Why is that? Well, it's a, it's a great question and a question that I had to ask myself at one point a lot because I grew up Baptist, you know, and most of, uh, well, all the churches I grew up in were called first. And uh, <laughs> But with Covenant, you know, Covenant's this idea, the best, most terse illustration or definition of it I've heard is that a covenant is a bond in blood. The Bible, you know, can be, you can view it as linked together by God's covenant, meaning just his promise that he will be the God to his people, whom he has made and redeemed and is sustaining, and they will be his people, and he will stop at nothing, as mm -hmm. the cross evidences to us ultimately, in order to fulfill that promise. So really you could call it Promised Presbyterian Church if you wanted. Well, I, I, I preached at a Presbyterian church in Singapore uh, just this last year, and it was called Glory Presbyterian Church. <laughs> so, I mean, the, these names are interesting to me. And covenant, of course, is also a word that's very important to Baptists. Baptist churches have what they call church covenants. Now, we don't pay much attention to them, many of us anymore, but it, it's very much a part of our tradition, too. And really it comes out of the Reformation, doesn't it? And this dependence upon the covenant of grace that God makes with all of his people. Yes, the, uh, the truth is, there are, uh, for a lot of Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches um, from our tradition, uh, the main difference is going to come in your government, where Presbyterian churches are governed by elders or representatives. Uh, Baptist churches are governed by deacons, but quite often even a Baptist church's deacon board functions a whole lot like our elder board. You know, at that point, the differences in some of our belief in, in baptism are the main things that, that separate us quite often. 
Well, I certainly sense in you a warm evangelical spirit. You know, you you love the Word of God. You want to be faithful to it. And uh, so it's it's so great that Covenant Presbyterian Church is a part of our new Beeson League of Churches. We've just started this uh, association, I guess you could call it, Fellowship of Churches that are in a kind of covenant with us to support the work that God has given us to do, and you're one of them, and I'm so grateful for that support. You're welcome. I, I'm grateful for the opportunity, and I think our whole church is. Uh, one of the things that really drew us to Birmingham was the fact that Covenant uh, was across the street from a university, and more particularly a university with a seminary. And for me, um, that's you know kind of like a kid in a candy shop. So it, uh, you know, my grandmother always dreamed of having her own nursing home, and people would kind of say, "What?" But she was a nurse, and she loved to care for people. Well, I always you know have dreamed of being across the street from a seminary, and a lot of people would kind of scratch their heads. But for me, that's a pretty fun thing, and so we we view it as a privilege. We, we also view it as a responsibility. If the Lord has put us this closely, we want to be able to minister and support the ministry here in whatever ways we can. Thank you. It's a great blessing. Now, you mentioned a while ago as you were introducing yourself, uh, your, your work in camping, and I know that's continued to be an important emphasis in your life. Tell us a little bit about what is the Alpine Camp for Boys here in Alabama, and more broadly, camping itself as a Christian endeavor. The president of Harvard University, he really turned Harvard into a worldwide research university. Probably Charles Eliot. Yeah, thank you. Uh, he said that America's contribution to the history of education was the summer camp. You know, of course, we didn't create universities by any stretch of the imagination or even seminary education and things like that, although we had something to do with that. But camping really is something that in America developed and became, I think, what you could say, a very significant cultural institution. And if you ever go into a church and you were to ask how many people here had a significant either conversion kind of experience or, or a re-kind of awakening kind of experience at a summer camp, usually you'll get about 90% of hands raised. Exploring the reasons for that has been a, a fascinating um, calling and opportunity for me over the past 25 years. And, and what really drove me to that was that uh, the summer after my freshman year at the University of Mississippi, I went to work on a lookout mountain at this privately owned, uh, for-profit, but very much Christian camp called Alpine Camp for Boys, a long-term camp where boys would stay for a month at a time. The staff uh, didn't come and go. They were there for the entire summer. And uh, what that ended up doing was it thrust me into a kind of community. It was all boys that I had never been in before. And it put me in a role as a counselor that was perhaps the most difficult thing I'd ever done and also, uh, without a doubt, probably the most fun as well as the most gratifying. So much so that, that I began to live collegiate life in between summers. And I've really tried the rest of my life in many ways is trying to unpack why are experiences like that so powerful. I think in a lot of ways as a pastor, I would put an institution like a seminary kind of somewhere in between the church and the summer camp. You know, summer camp, you're there 24-7. You eat, drink, sleep, play all in the confines of the camp. You see everyone. It's like a little small town that you go to for a while. Well, a, a seminary or even university campus is not totally like that, but also much more similar than different, whereas a church campus is a good deal different. 
if for no other reason, you know, people don't spend a whole lot of time together on the church campus. And so the question is, for me as a pastor, I think, how do we maximize the community time that God gives us when we're physically together in order that when we're not physically together, we are still functioning as a whole? Meaning simply as a, a group of Christians whom God has called together to worship him, to care for one another, and to also participate in the development uh, of the culture around us to the glory of God. How, how do we capitalize on that and function as a family, so to speak, even though we're not eating and drinking mm. at the same table every day? Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to the same activities. And so I think what we're trying to do is is have an approximation of what in camping, you know, uh, it is a really concentrated thing. Seems to me like what, what you're talking about, one of the, the virtues of camping is the word formation. That's what you want to be happening there, right? Not just a casual come and go, but a deep involvement and interface with the lives of one another and, and Jesus Christ. And um, formation is such an important thing, I think, for Christians. We, we, don't, we as evangelicals, we're very decisionistic. Yes. We make a commitment, we maybe are baptized uh, or or make a profession of faith, but then it's episodic. And it seems to me the camping, at least for that period of time in the year, offers a more in-depth, for- formative kind of experience. That is, a, um, I think, a great way to put it. The most powerful thing about Alpine Camp for me personally when I was 18 years old and I've been involved every summer but two since then. Uh, in one sense, Alpine, and this a lot of it had to do with some of the theology behind it and the understanding of, frankly, the grace of God in Christ and its power, was that Alpine was seeking to be as normal an environment as possible. Normal being defined, I think, by kind of a Christian understanding of just what the physical world is and who God is and what Jesus has really uh, redeemed us to be. And, and and it was such a n- normal feeling environment, and other, and by that I mean not a super spiritualized. There were de- you know devotions in the morning, there were devotions in the evening, but that was not given any more emphasis or less emphasis than football, archery, basketball, fried chicken, you know whatever the case may be. And after that, you begin to realize, oh, the Christian life is something that is meant to be, the strangeness about it is that it's so normal, it, it, it enables you to begin to let your guard down and be honest about who you are and who God is, mm-hmm. what he's done and what he might be calling you to do. That is a formative, like you say, um, for someone to spend a month in that kind of environment, for a college student to spend an entire summer. That is nothing short of, of, of drastic formation. Yeah. And so I think in our, our time right now, that word is being used a lot, and people like James K.A. Smith and uh, Charles Taylor talking about things like the, the social imaginary and, and, and what it means to, to really build community and, and to develop culture. They're saying that as Christians, we have a role in helping form people, communities, families, culture at large, and we, we need to think long and hard and pray greatly and study God's Word with that in mind. Yeah, wonderful. 
I want you to say a little bit about worship. I know worship's a very important part of every church's life. It ought to be. And your particular understanding of worship. I, I know you're interested in following the church year, for example, and using certain liturgical forms of worship. Uh, I have a kind of several-pronged question. Number one, how did you get interested in doing this? Number two, it sounds a little different than some Presbyterian and Baptist churches, though I think this is a shifting landscape to some extent. And what's, again, if I can come back to this word, formative output that you're seeking in this kind of way of worshiping the one and holy God? Well, one of the first things that comes to mind uh, when I'm asked that question, each week we publish a liturgy that is about 30 pages in length. That's not because we want there to be a long liturgy. We publish our music too, but we also want what people have before them to be clear, for it not to be cluttered, and to be obviously um, intentional and very much designed for our congregation. And, and what I tell people starting off is simply to quote a friend of mine who's a poet, and uh, he wrote a poem called You Have to Say Something. When we get together as, to worship, you have to say something. What we're saying in Christian worship is something in response to what God has already said. But because our time is limited and because we respect the fact that we're all made in God's image and we're worshiping the God in whose image we're made and who ultimately, whose, whose son has taken on flesh in order that we might be renewed in that image, we want what we say to be appropriate appropriate in terms of a reflection of history as it's distilled for us in the scriptures. We want it to be appropriate also in the sense of if we were to go forward 20 years, we want to be able to look back on what we were doing now and say, you know what, that, that was good. We're not ashamed of that. You know, We're not embarrassed by that. There's a lot that can be said. The, the question is simply, how do we take gleaning from the Bible and gleaning from church history and, and from those who, who had such um, just masterful gifts of understanding what it is for, for a community to come together and hear God and respond to him and to speak to one another. You know, how do we do that in such a way that, that there's enough repetition to it that actually you develop cadence and patterns over time and that also there's enough um, freshness to it that it's continually engaging. And I do think, kind of like biblical translation, that's a continual translative, you know, uh, occupation. We take th prayers, for example, from the fifth century, but but we edit them and, and, and try to present them in such a way that they're true to the original, and yet they can be understood, apprehended in such a way that people can kind of take them and, uh, and meditate on them, um, even after we've prayed together as a congregation. So I guess... A, I would say you have to say something, and B, I would say that whatever it is you're saying is going to, to develop a pattern. One of the things that uh, using the church year, for example, or, or liturgy and worship in the way you're talking about impresses me is it, it gives one the sense that you're a part of a family extended over time as well as space. So Christianity isn't just beginning with you or even your congregation, but you belong to the whole people of God. And these are ways in which God's people have expressed praises and prayers to him in ages past. And as you participate in that, and yes, uh, bring your own gift of presence to it, 
you're also a part of that same family. Yes. I tell our elders and congregants that as a senior pastor, I need to have a certain level of uh, expertise and background. But even if I had a, a much, much greater level than I do, which wouldn't be saying that much, um, you did call me doctor earlier and you gave me a... Um, you know, I really don't think you want me by myself just kind of figuring out what we're doing year in and year out in worship. I need to be leaning upon, we need to be leaning upon the wisdom of the ages. Otherwise, what kind of comes out and is said and what we do is going to have more probably than it should to do with my own personal inclinations. And I would rather be something, like you say, that's a part of a larger whole, uh, of, of the whole of history that's uh, been distilled down like the, the lectionary, for example, uses a three-year cycle that takes you through not every verse in the Bible, but the great majority of them, and and to where you're getting the whole counsel of God's Word. At that point, my role, other pastors' role, the elders' role is to translate, give our own spin on that in terms of where we live, who we are. But but we're like you say, we're participating in something much larger. And, and I, I encourage people, for example, when they're on vacation, I say, if you go to A, go to church, and B, if you go to a Methodist church, another Presbyterian church, an Episcopal church, even a Roman Catholic church, what you're going to find is that uh, they're going to be pretty much tracking if they're using the lectionary with us. And it's going to seem more familiar than less familiar. Yeah. And that's a powerful thing to realize. Yeah. Now, how does this relate to preaching, to your preaching in particular, and to the task of preaching in the context of worship? Well, it, you know, if you go back to that original word of covenant, and if we link Genesis to Revelation via the promises and the fulfillment of those promises by God, through his spirit, by the power, by Jesus and his blood, ultimately, what the lectionary does is you always have a gospel passage serving as a hub of a wheel. And the spokes of the wheel are texts from the Old Testament and other New Testament epistles and the book of Revelation and always the Psalms. And, and what it does is it keeps us focused on Jesus as king, as savior, as prophet, as priest. And it also, it helps all of us remember that the Old Testament was always pointing forward to the coming of the Christ. And the gospels are giving us these four accounts of Jesus's life and ministry, and the New Testament epistles are giving us kind of the postlude and what I love, what John Stott has said, the continuing ministry of the risen Lord through mm -hmm. his spirit. And, you know, over time, we begin to go, oh, the things that are different about Genesis and Exodus and John and First Peter are actually much less important than the things that are common. You know, this is symphonic. And so it's it's a symphonic way of doing things. Our pastors who preach, even though when we're following the lectionary, and we say that it's our it's our servant, it's not our master. You know, there are other traditions who would not say that, and that's one of the things I enjoy about being Presbyterian. For example, this summer we've departed from the lectionary and our preaching, and we're using the book of Proverbs every week. But beginning in Advent, we'll go back to the lectionary and follow it all the way through, uh, all the way up to Pentecost. And so, you know, what happens is a pastor can preach from the gospel text of the week, or they can make their main text the epistle, but we're always trying to tie in all three or four texts that the lectionary is giving us. But furthermore, we can pull in whatever else we want, or for that matter, delete what we want. 
But it does give us a rhythm and a pattern, you know, that was developed by lots and lots of people over hundreds of years. I tell you, the feedback we've gotten from the congregation over time is, uh, yeah, they just say, wow, you know, uh, the Bible really is first and foremost and always about the good news found in Jesus Christ. And then the application flows from that. I want to pick up on that application and ask you about the connection between liturgical worship or any worship and ethics. You know, the Old Testament is filled with lots and lots of passages where the prophets are crying against the people for all of their feasts and fasts and offerings which do not please God because there's a dissonance between what they're doing in the temple and how they're living day by day. And how is it that what happens in a Sunday in worship, even the kind of worship we're talking about today that's rooted and grounded in Scripture and respectful of how God has spoken to his people through the ages, how does this connect us to a world in which uh, so many horrible things are happening, in which Christians sometimes want to shrink from involvement and engagement? Uh, does it propel us into that world, or does it somehow become a kind of buffer against the world? Uh, do you sense that tension, that problem? Well, I, I, I see it as um, not a problem, but an opportunity and as a calling. And over the years, my views have developed in such a way, and I, I think the Scripture is what is developing this, and, and people who know a lot more than I do, who I read and follow. But I think you can make an argument that the most culturally significant event that happens, for example, say in Birmingham, is gathered worship on Sunday mornings by churches. There's probably nothing else that happens in the community with more economic impact, with more impact on schedule, with more impact just on cultural rhythm. That means that a worship service is not simply preparing people for cultural engagement. It is a culturally formative event. And again, I would argue it's even more culturally formative uh, than college football. And I, I mean that seriously. <laughs> You're in Alabama Although, now. Although, <laughs> I think, you know, in the age in which we live, there are interesting um, comparisons to there. But And then what happens outside of that event is that, or what flows from it when it's functioning well is just care and concern for one another. We have weekly communion, and I tell people that what our, our worship service is is simply table conversation. God brings us to his table, and he's teaching us what it means to listen to him and then to respond and in the process to see one another for who we are as members of his family, which means that a great deal of what happens in, in worship each week is God bringing us to the family meal, and he's teaching us what it means to tell the truth in love, which is a lifelong process. And, and it's something that, for the most part, makes us very nervous and takes us a long time to develop the courage to do, the courage to really hear with ears that want to hear the truth, the courage to really speak in ways that are truthful. You know, the, you mentioned the Old Testament quite often uh, is what we will use first off in the liturgy early on to set us up for the confession of sin. And we're always saying, look, confession of sin is not something we do because we have to. It's something we do because the gospel actually gives us the courage to do it. You know, in the gospel, we see the heart of the Father which tells us don't run from God, run to him. Mm. And the more honest you are with him, uh, the more gracious you'll find him to be. And the more gracious you'll find him to be, the, the, the clearer your sight will be in terms of seeing our own sin for what it really is and also seeing the weight of the blood of Jesus. 
And what that does in turn is it gives us not only courage, but it, it gives us interest in a father who is creative and redemptive. And all of a sudden our eyes begin to raise up and we begin to look at the world around us. And, and you know, as a Presbyterian, it, it begins to make a little more sense when we say, well, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, well, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, that means enjoying his world and participating not just in the life of the church, but in the life of the world, even as Jesus did, you know. And so I see there's this fundamental culturally formative, but also culturally preparational aspect to worship, to church life, where we're sent out, as the Book of Common Prayer says, to be the body of Christ in the world. What we want at the end of the day actually is not, I mean, I'm happy when we have very developed and uh, gifted Bible teachers. I'm equally happy when we have people who are practicing law to the glory of God and people who are thinking about what it means to be in a profit-making entity as a Christian. What is appropriate for that? What, what is appropriate in the service industry for a Christian? And how, what are the opportunities we have to engage and, and shape the world, the neighborhoods, the state in which we live? We began this conversation by talking about formation, and we've ended it uh, moving into transformation. And I think that's something of what uh, the rhythm of worship leads us from and to as believers in Jesus Christ, gathered around his word and empowered by his spirit to be his people in this broken and very needy world. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been the Reverend Bill Boyd. He is the senior pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church right here in Birmingham. He's become a wonderful good friend to me and to our school, and we're so glad the Lord has led you back to Birmingham to carry on where you started out those years ago as a little baby. And may God bless you and your ministry and your wonderful church at Covenant. Well, thank you. I still feel like a baby, but I'm glad to have some people nearby like you who can care for me and our whole body. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.